0: My name is Kari Barclay, and I'm the community engagement coordinator for the San Francisco MIME Troop. On this episode of Tales of the Resistance, we will delve into topics of policing, race, and democracy that have been at the heart of our series. You'll get a chance to hear from community organizers from North Carolina and California, as well as the MIME Troupe's very own Michael Jean Sullivan. A year ago, following the murder of George Floyd, thousands took to the street to protest the prevalence of police violence in this country targeting Black Americans. A year later, where does the movement to end police brutality stand? And what can we learn from community organizers' victories in the fight against racialized policing? We'll start to answer these questions on our episode entitled, We Keep Us Safe, a discussion of police violence with the San Francisco MIME Troop. I'm excited to welcome our first guest today, Danielle Purifoy from Durham Beyond Policing, a coalition dedicated to ending police violence in Durham, North Carolina. Danielle is an assistant professor of geography at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she researches environmental justice and its relationship with structural inequality. Well, I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Danielle Purifoy. Danielle, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hey, everyone. I'm Danielle Purifoy, and I am with Durham Beyond Policing in Durham, North Carolina.
0: Great. Well, welcome. Can you tell us how you first got involved with Durham Beyond Policing?
1: Sure. So I um, was a grad student uh, back in 2016. Um, That year, uh, the Durham City Council basically was taking out a bond of about $71 million to, um, to pay for, to build a new police headquarters in the downtown area uh, bordering East Durham, which is um, a majority Black and Latinx uh, neighborhood. And so Durham Beyond Policing was formed at initially as a campaign to stop that police headquarters. We didn't succeed in that campaign, but it really started our work uh, digging into our local budgets Um, at the city, and then eventually at the county level to understand um, how much money we were actually spending on the police department, um, the sheriff's department, and the the Durham County Jail.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about the strategies that Durham Beyond Policing uses, electoral politics, organizing, sort of what what are some of the the ways that y'all have sought to achieve your goal in the sort of unique political environment that is Durham, North Carolina?
1: Sure. So um, we do a lot of organizing around the budget every year. So every spring, um, I would say between from March to June, um, there is a lot of debate around the proposed budget um, at the city and county level. Um, We do a lot of some pre-work to prepare ourselves to think about, you know, what our demands are, um, based on conversations with um, various folks in our communities who've been impacted by over policing and surveillance, but also who um, have real material needs um, like affordable housing. This is a very um, this area is gentrifying pretty rapidly because big tech is um, arriving um, in, in, in this region. Um, Another thing that we've done is community workshops um, on policing and abolition, right? A lot of people get uh, nervous about what policing abolition means, right? We have, we've lived for centuries with really kind of one model or one idea of what public safety is, um, you know, that public safety consists of um, a system of punishment, right, for, uh, for crime, right. Um, incarceration, um, you know, the death penalty if, if, if need be. Right. And so, uh, trying to, um, really talk with folks about, um, alternative models for, for thinking about public safety, um, alternative models for implementation of public safety. So we expand our view. Mm -hmm. So those are just a few of the tactics.
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, You mentioned at first that Durham Beyond Policing is an abolitionist organization and tend to transform specifically being about reallocating resources um, from policing. And what would you say to those who are kind of hearing that national narrative, hearing some of the language coming from the Biden administration around supporting the police? um, Mm -hmm. What would you say to folks who are more sort of in the reformist school um, who don't necessarily think of abolition as the way to go?
1: even if we were able to eliminate all of the, um, the police killings that people think of as unjustifiable, right? Um, we would still not have an effective response to and prevention of violence in our communities because the police are not designed to do that, right? If you want to prevent violence, Um, you have to get at the root of violence, why people harm, right? And that has a lot to do in our society with people's basic needs not being met, right? It is very difficult um, to um, live a life that is not violent if you do not have a home, if you do not have food, if you do not have um, healthcare, if you don't have um, the things that you need, right? There is a high... High correlation between those things, the lack of those things and violence. Um, and when violence does happen, when harm does occur, um, punishment, caging people, right, uh, putting people in solitary confinement is not an effective way to mitigate harm, right? Um, you traumatize people, you re-traumatize people, you um, place people in, um, in environments that is just a that are just as or more violent than um, the context that they came from. And so um, we need other ways to uh, meaningfully address harm. And that's hard for people, right? It's hard for people, especially who have experienced harm um, you know, of themselves or their loved ones to wrap themselves around. And we have been in a mode of thinking of punishment um, and caging people as a response to harm for longer than any of us on the planet have been alive. And so um, it's understandably hard to shift that narrative. Um, But it has to be shifted if we actually want to do something meaningful about violence and about harm.
0: Mm, Thank you so much for that. And I think when we think about divestment, uh, reinvestment, there's always that side of reinvestment and focusing on interventions that actually address harm. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. You've been listening to Danielle Purifoy from Durham Beyond Policing. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on Tales of the Resistance.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Danielle was speaking about what it means to transform the narrative around policing and community safety. I can think of few organizations doing that work as effectively as the Anti-Police Terror Project, based in Oakland, California, right in the San Francisco Mime Troops' backyard. The Anti-Police Terror Project has been working for years to combat police brutality and to imagine alternative solutions to community safety. I had the good fortune of speaking with Anti-Police Terror Project co-founder Kat Brooks about her work in the San Francisco Bay Area. All right. So I'm really pleased to welcome with us to the show today, Kat Brooks. Kat, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Kat Brooks. I am the
2: co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, uh, She, Her, Hers. I am also the executive director of the Justice Teams Network, um, and I am also a playwright, actress, and director, and I'm based in West Oakland with my kids.
0: Fantastic. Love that combination of arts and uh, social justice work. So very, very glad to have you on the show today. Um, I First off, I'd just like to hear what brought you to uh, co-found the Anti-Police Terror Project. How did you first get involved in this sort of work? Um, I've been an organizer my whole adult life, um, but worked on a bunch
2: of issues, everything from education reform to people coming back from prison, to land use. Um, It was actually the education work that brought me to Oakland. Um, And shortly, I moved here in 2008, and shortly after that, Oscar Grant was murdered on the BART platform uh, New Year's Day morning, really. It was 12.01. And I I talk a lot about the first time I saw that video. It wasn't the first black man at all that had been killed by police, and not the first time I'd reacted to a case. But there was something about his case, the, the brutality of the execution, the racial slurs that he was called, and maybe even more than that, the the organic rebellions that happened almost immediately. Um, and so I started volunteering for folks that were running the Justice for Oscar grant campaign. Um, at that same time, I was also working with a group of black organizers um, with an organization called the Black August Organizing Committee, which works with uh, folks that are on the inside. And um, we became involved as a collective in the struggle for justice for Oscar and ultimately ended up being the folks that were calling a lot of the marches that you, you saw, uh, going back and forth to Los Angeles, building with the family, um, throughout that protracted struggle. Um, after that, we formed an organization called the Onyx organizing committee, and we were responding to state terror, both murders that were happening locally by the Oakland police department. At that time, OPD was one of the most murderous police departments in Northern California. Um, but also to murders that were happening across the country. Um, We were in the streets all the time, thousands of people. And uh, at at one point, we started to have a conversation about what we were really achieving just doing protest, right? Um, So it was great that the news was covering it. It was great that people were coming out. But at the end of the day, the state was still killing us. And so ABTP was really born to be both a reactionary and visionary response to state terror. So we wanted to not just react. We wanted to also figure out how we interrupted it, prevented it. Um, and we also wanted to figure out how we supported families in particular. Um, and then finally, we wanted to shift the public debate around public safety and policing in this country.
0: And that was about eight years ago now. Thank you. Yeah, and I think both, I guess, both within within Oakland and kind of around the country, I think there's also been, uh, in recent months, uh, sort of, uh, in some ways, a, a backlash. In some ways, people have noticed... Um, sort of rising crime rates in different parts of the country. And a lot of people have had a knee-jerk response to invest more in policing. And I'm curious what you would say to folks who are noticing gunshots in their neighborhood and are concerned and what you would say to them um, about, about these particular efforts to ensure public safety.
2: Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. Um, one, I just want to start with the premise: we all want safe communities. I live in the hood, so I'm the gunshots are actually in my neighborhood, right? And mm-hmm. I have a child who I very much want to to be safe and secure. Um, there's this there's this weird false narrative that <laughs> that somehow you know we we don't care about public safety. Um, what we're clear about, however, is is we have police presence in our neighborhoods. I, I live in an I live in a community that has an occupying army in it. Um, I also want people to be clear that when defund started to take the blame for the rise in violent crime, nothing had been defunded yet. Police departments had their budgets and their staffing, and so if law enforcement could prevent violent crime, then why were they not able to interrupt the spike and The reason goes back to what I said earlier: they are violence responders, they are not violence interrupter, and there's and there's actually no data anywhere, except for someone did share a Vox article with me, which sort of made me laugh. I was like, if that's your answer to my research, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I can talk to you anymore. <laughs> um, but there's no data anywhere that shows an actual direct correlation between more cops and less crime. What most experts in, in, um, in, and I uh, agree with is that what COVID didn't just exacerbate pre existing medical conditions of the people that were most impacted it exacerbated pre-existing social conditions. So the poor got poorer, the hungry got hungrier, people lost their jobs, they lost their homes, and then there's the stress. I mean, we all remember that. I remember the stress of being terrified that I was going to get sick and die, the stress and strain of watching your loved ones get sick and die. Um, And then for our young people, right, schools, support institutions, after-school programs, counselors, all that went away. There was no access to any of that and we were isolated. And all of that combined with the daily stressors of poverty, an explosion of violence makes logical sense. What doesn't make logical sense is to continue to maintain a status quo that's just going to ensure that we remain in this cycle of violence.
0: Thank you for that clarification. And I think the thread that we've been talking about this whole time about mental health as well, is just so so important to bring in here. And yeah, COVID really took a toll on so many people. And um, it's, it's definitely important to kind of see that connection between um, first response to mental health and and just all, like you were saying, all the underlying ills, underlying ills in our society that get um, have gotten exacerbated during this time. Um, we're here with the San Francisco Mime Troupe uh, making artistic work, um, particularly radio plays this summer, um, responding to the legacies of policing and the carceral system. And I'm curious what role you see art in, uh, having and facilitating social change, and what has art meant to you um, in this fight to uh, to reinvest in communities and uh, to combat police violence?
2: So, as far as I'm concerned, right, we are supposed to be the conscious of society. Right, we we are the moral compass. We are the canaries in the coal mine, and we have the ability to have conversations with people in very particular ways. So, not everybody's going to come out with me on the corner of Fourteenth and Broadway and listen, you know, listen to me talk or march with us or chant with us. Um, either they don't believe in protests, they don't want to deal with the issue, whatever. But if I can get you in a 99-seat black box theater while I do a story about Tasha McKenna, who was murdered uh, in 2015 in Fairfax, Virginia, you're open and vulnerable um, to to messaging and information in in a very different way. Um, I think one of the things that's special about the Bay Area is that often art becomes like a soundtrack of our movements. So it's sort of awesome as you see folks in the street, just see particular music being made or plays being written, movies. Um, it, 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 artists have platforms that activists don't have. And, and one of the things that excited me about this budget cycle was that we intentionally brought artists to the table, right? So artists and activists can be having the same conversation in real time as opposed to what often happens and artists become the afterthought for entertainment at the rally. Right, um, but the culture makers right are who ultimately shift our social fabric um, and and we are critical um, to any movement for social justice and any major shifts we want to see in our society.
0: Mm, I love this idea of the artist being uh, soundtrack to the movement uh, that's really really fascinating um. If folks uh, who are listeners want to get involved with APTP or support you all as an organization, um, what are some, some next steps or places that you would guide them? Sure. So we have an
2: amazing uh, communications team, all volunteers, um, but you'd never know it by the amount of work they pump out. So our social platforms are always hot and popping. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Uh, You can go to our website, antipoliceterrorproject.org. There you can sign up for our newsletter. We do not spam folks, um, so (laughs) don't worry about that, but we do send critical updates. Um, Our general meeting, where everybody's invited, um, are the third Wednesday of every month at 7 o'clock. and, and uh, we, we look for people to, to join our committees. We've got you know policy work. The defund work continues. We're expanding Mental Health First to other cities and beefing it up in Oakland and Sacramento. Um, we've got the First Responders Committee that works directly with families. Our policy committee um, is always looking for, for new and hungry folks that, whose brains work in that magical way. Um, mine does not. Uh, James Birch is a G. Um uh, I think I said our comms committee already and our fundraising committee
0: so there are lots of ways to plug in and we would love to have you well thank you thank you so much Kat for joining us on the show very glad to have you
2: thank you for having me I, I hope we figure out some ways we can collaborate together to tell these stories I think that'd be dope I would love that I would love
0: that The second episode of this series, Tales of the Resistance, was entitled Jailbreak, and it dealt with themes of policing and mass incarceration that we've been speaking about with community organizers today. Now you'll get a chance to hear from the writer behind that episode, Jailbreak, about his experience writing about policing and where he sees hope for us moving in 2021. I'm pleased to welcome to the show Michael Gene Sullivan, writer for Tales of the Resistance Part 2. Michael, can you introduce yourself?
3: Sure. Michael Gene Sullivan, collective member, actor, director, and for the last 20 years,
0: resident playwright with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Excellent. Well, we're so glad to have you here. As we talk today about police violence and structural racism, I'm curious to hear what drew you to this topic, drew you and the collective to talk about police violence in this particular moment this summer. Well, we've always
3: had our eye on and had multiple shows that have been done about police oppression. Uh, What is the concept of policing, you know, and how it has become less and less about trying to deal with actual crime and more and more about uh, um, occupying what the police see as hostile territory, You know, we're treated less and less like citizens of the United States and more and more like, you know, uh, you know, uh, a conquered nation that has to be constantly watched and oppressed and suppressed so that we don't rebel against our occupiers. And in that – so we've done shows about how the – the drug war was used to you know, undermine civil rights and uh, basically to get every black man and every Latino man and every man who didn't look exactly like that particular cop into the system, to be fingerprinted, to be strip searched, to be uh, told on every possible level that they were less than and that any right they thought they had could be squelched at any given moment. So that you know, basically live in fear and keep your mouth shut. And one of the tools that I found in my research was the idea of resisting arrest. Resisting arrest is the blanket charge that can be used against any protester, any striker. Uh, If a cop comes up to you on the street and demands something from you and you just turn to walk away, you are resisting arrest. And it is always an objective charge. It is simply in the mind of that cop. The resisting charge is what they hold you on. It is a way to get... Uh, protesters and everyone else in the system, and they can hold you for you know a while. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it turned out you didn't steal that car. Oh, it turned out that we didn't do this. Yeah, it turned out that that paperwork was wrong. It turned out that the cops shouldn't have stopped you in the first place, but you resisted. And if a cop says you resisted, if you didn't like the way they put that chokehold on you, if you turned away when they were threatening you, if you didn't slow down, they could shoot you. Everything is resisting. arrest. And so as I realized that more and more, I thought, well, I want to do a show where that's – on the one hand, that is the only charge against these two uh, um, activists
0: is resisting. That's what they've been pulled in for. How do you – do you feel like the way that you write about policing has changed at all or anything that sort of a a year following the initial wave of protests um, following the killing of George Floyd – how sort of your thinking has changed or if you have any messages for audiences now in this particular moment?
3: Knowing that we're coming into another season where there will be a lot of protests because a lot of stuff didn't change. There was a lot of lip service last year. But at the same time, the police pushed back and local lawmakers who rely on the police as their personal, you know, it's like, oh, because, I mean, the police union runs certain towns. They get, you know... Uh, 50% of the budget in places in small towns, it's ridiculous that they have that. It's ridiculous that they have these weapons of war and that they they cannot be questioned. They cannot be sued. All of these different protections that we've given the police in the idea that, well, every day they wake up, they might get killed. Well, you know what? That's any of us. If you can't take that, if psychologically that's going to put you in a position where you're going to put others at risk, you should be fired or quit. You never should have gotten this job, um, and that's that's a great. Uh, uh, and like I said, so what you end up with is police officers, police forces, who it's all about, you know what? Like Cartman says on um, South Park, it's about you know respect my authority, do what I say. It's a tiny dictatorship between me and this person if they don't do exactly what i say and i'm a cop then that is a personal and professional and military affront to me and therefore all bets are off and i can do whatever i want to this person cuz they didn't walk faster they didn't walk slower they didn't stand still they didn't move whatever it is i told them to do they didn't do it in the right way they looked at me funny any of these things and and it's all resisting arrest so i think in addition to redefining what the police are and what should be their responsibility, which is actually very small. We also need to redefine um, and, and validate the idea of resistance. That, you know, resisting resist, that's not even a crime. It shouldn't be a crime. If you're being arrested because you're beating somebody up, the crime is beating somebody up. Resisting arrest is a political crime and should not be on the books.
0: Are you optimistic? Is there anything that gives you hope about the future of policing in this country? Well,
3: I think that you know it's one of those things, Facebook um, and Twitter and, and uh, uh, Instagram, that there's a validation that has happened because people can uh, have a video of what happened of their experience with the police that for generation upon generation, uh, it was anecdotal evidence. A black person would say, well, the cops said this to me, or they said that to me, and everyone would go, no, they didn't. It's your word against a cop, and who are we going to believe? You're just some black guy. This is a police officer. And with the increase of of, um, kind of real-time video documentation and video evidence, there are a lot of cases that are coming to the front in a way that When the police union or the fraternal order of police or the benevolent brotherhood or whatever comes up and says, well, we are going to defend this cop because they're a good cop and there's video evidence of them, you know, uh, molesting or, or assaulting or murdering someone, it invalidates those police unions that were unquestionable before. Heartening about the protests of the last few years has been, as more and more people have seen, that it's not about changing this police department or that police department or getting rid of this bad cop or that bad cop. It's that the whole system has to be reimagined. People still, if their house gets broken into, they would like to call the cops to help them. Mm.
0: Thank you for that, Michael. I've been really grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
3: Thank you for having me, Kari.
0: Hearing Michael say that there will be future cases of police brutality and future protests to fight against it reminded me that this is long-standing work from groups like Durham Beyond Policing in North Carolina and the Anti-Police Terror Project in California. Community organizers and artists have been working to imagine public safety in different ways and that this is often backstage work that we don't always see. I hope you got a glimpse of that in today's discussion. Thank you for joining us.
4: On next week's Tales of the Resistance, we return to Mysterious Mysteries, as we hear Black conservative commentator Angelica Phoenix maneuver her way up the sexist corporate ladder while uncovering what is really going on at her right-wing network and Who was that strange woman in the parking lot? Find out next week in part two of Tale of the Black Fox. This episode was produced by Kari Barclay, Will McCandless, and the San Francisco Mime Troupe. The Mime Troupe theme song was written and produced by Jeremy Mage and Daniel Salvio and performed by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. Special thanks to our guests, Danielle Purifoy, Kat Brooks, and Michael Jean Sullivan. Francisco Mime Troop is a worker-run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational collective of activist artists committed to overthrowing capitalism one musical comedy at a time. And one of these days, we will get it right. Each summer we tour our shows at a price every member of the working class can afford. Free! With so many insurrectionist reactionary shenanigans going on, the Mime Troop needs to make sure our message of art, activism, and social justice is part of the resistance. And even though the pandemic is fading, the Mime Troop still wants to keep our audiences as safe as possible. So we decided Nothing says revolutionary fervor and safety like radio plays. And for those wondering how a radical theater can survive these capitalist times, it's because of you. The troupe doesn't take corporate sponsorship. You'll never see the AT&T or Comcast Mime Troupe. How could we show the hypocrisies of capitalism if we were in bed with a capitalist? So instead, we are in bed with you, our fellow workers. Let's snuggle. And after that, you can support the troupe by visiting our website, sfmt.org. Thank you to the San Francisco Arts Commission, SF Grants for the Arts Hotel Tax Fund, California Arts Council, USPPP, the Fly Shacker Foundation, the Bernard Osher Foundation, the Zellerbach Family Foundation, Kali Austin, the Don Stevens and Nicole Bellotti Laugh and Love Fund, this public radio station, and listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and remember, in one week it'll be time once again for Tales of the Resistance!